good day. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today I am pleased to have with us Professor Matthew Hughes. Professor Hughes is Professor of Military History at Brunel University in London. He sits on the board of the British Journal of Military History and is on the board of Middle East, the journal Middle East Studies. Today we are speaking about his new book, Britain's Pacification of Palestine, the British Army, the Colonial State, and the Arab Revolt, 1936-1939. to Welcome, Professor Hughes. Welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me onto your podcast. Professor Hughes, what is the thesis of your book? The thesis of my book is that the British, both in the form of the British Army and also the British colonial state, were both very effective at pacifying, in this case, case Palestine in the 1930s, but the argument applies more generally across the British Empire, any of the British colonies that were in revolt against metropolitan rule. So I look at the power of the British state through the prism of the British army, but in conjunction with the colonial state out in Palestine in the 1920s and 1930s, and I feel the texture of British power against the power of the rebels, the Palestinian insurgents, to see how it was that by 1939 the British triumphed over the rebellion and managed to pacify Palestine prior to the outbreak of the Second World War in September 1939, when the British obviously were desperate to get their military units out in Palestine back to the United Kingdom to face Germany in the Second World War. When can we reasonably state that the revolt commenced? The normal beginning of the revolt, the sort of formal beginning of the, revo- of the revolt, is the 19th of April, 1936. It's on that date that there is a, uh, a rising of Palestinians, which forces the British to institute some very particular emergency legislation. So the formal dating of the revolt is from April 1936. But for people looking at the longer history of the of the clash in Palestine Israel between the Palestinians and Jewish settlers the Isra- later the Israelis many people would go back earlier to the early 1930s to the 1920s there were some very bloody riots in 1929 there were riots in 1920 and 21 and of course in 1917 the British issued the Balfour Declaration so my book starts in April 1936 but it does acknowledge that the the background to the clash between the two communities in British Mandate Palestine goes back really to the end of the First World War. Do you adhere to the idea that there was a specifically British way of counterinsurgency and that uh, said way can be seen in, in the fashion that the British suppressed the Arab Well, that's a very good question. Thank you for asking me that. The The, the book is a little bit um, cautious about pushing the British way of counterinsurgency because that was an argument that used to be um, very fashionable many years ago. But the conclusion of the book is that there was a, a distinct British way of of pacification of what we now would call counterinsurgency. And al- although it was brutal, it largely targeted property, not people. It was 
awful in so many ways, but relatively speaking, compared to other colonial powers at the time, and indeed uh, post-colonial powers such as America and Vietnam or the Russians in Afghanistan, the, the British way was both successful and relatively, I do say relatively, less bloody. And uh, on that point, how would you compare the British tactics during the revolt with those employed by the French in the Searing Revolt of 1925-1920? Well, it's a good comparison. It's a good question because, of course, the, the French in Syria in the 1920s level large parts of some Syrian cities uh, with artillery fire. Now, the British also demolish parts of Palestinian cities such as Arab Jaffa, uh, which they do in the summer of 1936. But the British are very careful to remove the people from the buildings before destroying them. And they don't destroy them with artillery fire, but with dynamite in situ. So they, they go into the buildings and blow them up from the inside. So it's an example of how the British are more discriminate with the considerable force and violence that they use. They're more discriminate in how they do it. And in that discrimination, you can see some of the story of the British way in counterinsurgency and how the British try to avoid excessive civilian casualties. You describe the rebels as being primarily, quote, pre-political revolutionary traditionalist, unquote. Can you expand and explain exactly what you mean by that uh, characterization? Thank you. I, yes, I, I, I use that in the context of, uh, sort of looking at the revolt through a Maoist or Marxist lens, and the book's not a Marxist text, but it's very interested in how revolutionary movements such as Mao and before him Lenin and before that Marx, before him Marx, looked at how um, how insurgency should be organized. And one of the points I make is from uh, Eric Hobsbawm, and I use the expression social bandits. So I argue that the insurgents in Palestine, the Palestinians, were, were not very well organized. They were, they were primitive. I don't mean that in a pejorative sense because they had um, a lot of social cohesion and historical evolution, but they weren't politically organized in the way that, say, the insurgency in China was at the same time. Because, of course, in the 1920s and 1930s, Mao Zedong in China was fighting first the uh, Guomindang and Chiang Kai-shek, and later he was fighting the Japanese. And he was successful by using peasants, and China was like Palestine, it was fundamentally agrarian, rural, it was a peasant-based society. He managed to mobilize the peasants and make them into a revolutionary force. And he talks about these four stages where you start from preparation, then you go to terror, then you go to rural mobile war. And finally, at the highest stage, you have pitched battles. And this is, of course, what the Chinese did have. And also the Viet Minh against the French in 1954 at Dien Bien Phu, a pitched conventional battle. And my point in the book is the Palestinians never really evolved much beyond the first or second level. And my argument is that they're not politically organized. I mean, it could be politically organized as revolutionary communists. They could be organized today religiously with Islamic State. They could be organized as conservative nationalists, as AOKAS, like Cypriot nationalists were in the 1960s. They could be urban guerrillas in the mold of ETA or the IRA or in America, the Weathermen, these sorts of organizations. They could be sort of revolutionary chic in the way of uh, Che Guevara in South America or Fidel Castro. But there were none of these things. Instead, the revolt erupted and then it fell back on itself and it, it descended back into the sort of banditry and brigandage from which the insurgents came and there were no good political leaders to transform these bandits into political insurgents. And that was a point that Mao made, that if you don't transform the peasantry, 
and politically mobilize them, then the insurgency is bound to fail, especially against as powerful and as experienced uh, counterinsurgency power as, the, as Britain was at the time. In the book, you make use of interviews with surviving participants on both sides, British as well as uh, Palestinian Arabs. Uh, given the fact that in some instances these survivors are trying to recount events that were upwards of uh, between 60 and 70 years post facto, how reliable can uh, one characterize their memories? Yes, I, I, I interviewed uh, Ted Horn, who's still alive, um, very lucid, um, both then and now. He's I've just spoke to him recently on the phone and he was in the Palestine police in the very early 1940s and I also interviewed and he lives in Britain I also interviewed in Jordan in Amman the capital Bajat Abu Ghabiya who was an insurgent in the 1930s he also fought against Israel in the 1940s and in the 1930s he shot one of the British police officers a man called Alan Sigrist in 1936 so he's very directly involved in the insurgency your, your point is a very good one oral history and memory are are always problematic. I mean, there are there are there are lots of pitfalls with oral history, and people remember things incorrectly, willfully or or, or not willfully. But oral history also provides wonderful colour to any text, and it gives you insights that you don't get through formal records. So one of the points I make in the book is that to understand the insurgency, it's necessary to be creative with one's methodologies and not just go with conventional archives. Most of, most of which, or nearly all of which, are in Israel or Britain. So they give the perspective of the British colonial power or the Jewish settlers. So to try and get something from the other side of the hill, it's necessary to do the best we can to, to use as many different sources, but also to triangulate those sources against the contemporary archival record so that we can test what the oral history says against what the more conventional archival record tells us. And in Bajak, Abu Ghabir's case and in Ted Horn's case, I, I found both of their accounts to be credible and consistent and they're not pivotal to the book. They're just uh, they're, they're sort of add-ons, but very useful add-ons that I would hope for readers gives, gives more colour and more of a story of this uh, immense uprising and crushing in Palestine in the 1930s. Would it be correct to say that from your perspective, looking at the matter historically speaking, the Palestinian Arabs, in, in order to succeed, needed a Leninist vanguard leadership? Well, they needed something. They needed something. Uh, there was a Palestine Communist Party. It was quite small. I think the British were very suspicious of it and spent a lot of their time in the 1920s and 30s. The British police, CID, the Criminal Investigation Department, spent a lot of its time following avowed communists and they were very, Britain was very worried about communist um, encroachments into mandate Palestine they took their eye off the ball because actually the, the threat came from um, the Palestinians broadly well, not from the Palestine Communist Party the Communist Party was very small so it never mobilized the Palestinians it uh, alienated many of its Jewish cadres, and there were many Jews within the Palestine Communist Party so it, th there wasn't going to be a communist insurrection and there was never 
a, a strong communist movement to lead the rebels. But in lieu of that, the, re- the rebels needed something else. It didn't have to be a Marxist, Leninist, vanguard party. It could have been, as I, as I said earlier, um, a religious movement. It could have been a conservative political movement. But above all, it needed to be organized. It needed to treat the peasantry properly. It needed to fight a protracted war. It needed to fight a steady war. It wasn't going to happen overnight, the defeat of the British. They needed to fight a long war. And these things never happened. I mean, the, the rebels, interestingly, did have a strong religious tone to them. But in a Palestinian community in which 10% of Palestinians are Christian, it was dominated very heavily by Muslim insurgents. And they often... Um, treated unfairly or persecuted Christians, often extorting them for money, for instance. So they never brought together all the different elements within the Palestinian community to fight against the British and to fight against Jewish settlers, despite the fact that um, not all Palestinians were Muslim. So even religiously, it wasn't very effective. And the lack of political organization is very vivid at the head of the uh, Palestinian insurgency movement, where you have a man normally known as the Mufti, Hajj Amin al-Husseini, who was an Islamic cleric but also a political leader in Jerusalem eventually he fled the country in 1937 because the British were chasing him and he was the the, the titular head of the the insurgency and he he wasn't effective enough he he fought internal enemies and this will always be the case with insurgency they will have internal divisions but he fought internal enemies um, much more than he fought the external enemy of the British and the the Jews in Palestine and this is, a, I think, a problem that's bedeviled the Palestinian movement I mean, right up until the 1960s when Yasser Arafat emerges as the leader of the PLO, that an insurgency, unless the counterinsurgency power is very weak, an insurgency will never succeed if it's not properly organized, disciplined, committed fully to the insurgency. Uh, otherwise, it, it will be defeated. And the counterinsurgency powers, such as Britain, sought for fissures. Uh, it sought for divisions within the insurgency movement, and it bought off, it bribed, it shot, it wounded, it harried, it exiled, it imprisoned the people who were fighting against it. And it sought weaknesses in the insurgency movement. The British do the same thing and did the same thing in Northern Ireland in the 1970s against the IRA. Divide and rule. And they were very effective. The British were very effective in Palestine in the 1930s. And interestingly, when the British tried the same approach against the Jewish insurgents in the 1940s, between 1945 and 1948, it didn't work. Or it didn't work to the same extent. And the Jewish insurgency was successful. And the reason for that was that the Jews had excellent organization, excellent political velocity. They were armed, they were trained, they were ready. So when the British adopted the same strategies as they adopted against the Palestinians, these strategies failed. Legally speaking, how do the British govern Palestine under the mandate? Uh, do you say legally speaking? Yeah, uh, they 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 um, they ran the mandate as a Class A mandate, so it was supposed to be uh, one of the mandates that would get independence fairly quickly. It was ruled via the League of Nations. Uh, I'm sure your listeners will know that after the First World War, the forerunner really of the United Nations, but at this time it was called the League of Nations, was established at its headquarters in Switzerland. And the British ran Palestine as a League of Nations mandate. So the British were really there standing in for the League of Nations. Now that is the de jure position. De facto, the British ran Palestine as if it was a colony. It was run through the British colonial office. But once a year, the British submitted a report to the League of Nations. But in my study of the insurgency in the 1930s, I have seen little or no... um, weight given by the British to the League of Nations. What I mean by that, 
put simply, is the British didn't take any account of the League of Nations in terms of what the British troops were doing in Palestine. The British ran Palestine effectively as if, as if it was part of the British Empire, although technically or legally, as you say, it, was in, it had a different status to other imperial possessions. Uh, so it would be correct to say that uh, Geneva was not an important factor in the British rule of Palestine and especially in how they dealt with the um, Palestinian Arab revolt. In my view, no. I've looked at the League of Nations reports that the British sent to the League uh, during the period of the revolt and I don't see anything in there that would suggest that the British army or British soldiers or British colonial officials were changing their behavior because of a worry about what Geneva might or might not do. I mean, the British were more worried about German and Italian press stories. They were also worried about um, the Muslim world more generally as it related to the British Empire and colonies such as India, which had large Muslim communities. So the British were aware of propaganda and they... They, they didn't do certain things because they were fearful of propaganda, but that was largely to do with the foreign press, sometimes the press at home back in London or um, what might be raised in the Houses of Parliament back in London, or they were worried about the effect on Egypt or India or, or Muslim communities within the British Empire. But I didn't, my view is I didn't see any big impact from the League of Nations on what the British did or didn't do. Uh Going back to the evolution of the revolt, um, in um, the fall of 1936, there is a ceasefire. Um, and um, at that point, the British effort it becomes slack or to, to some, some extent. Uh, would it be correct to say that, uh, I got this from reading the book, that um, there was a feeling post facto that if the British had not uh, um, agreed to the ceasefire, then the revolt would have been militarily suppressed much, much earlier. That's a good point, and it's one of the points I make in the book. I mean, it's a, it's a counterfactual because obviously it's not what did happen. There's a there's a ceasefire in early October. I think it's on the 12th of October, and this ceasefire lasts until September of the following year when the revolt erupts again. And there are two tracks in operation here because the uh, Walshop, who's the British High Commissioner, so he's the, the governor, if you like, of Palestine. He's pursuing a political diplomatic track, trying to effect a ceasefire and a political settlement to the insurgency. The army, which has really ramped up its presence in Palestine in the summer of 1936, following the start of the revolt, is there, ready to go. It wants to deal with the business quickly, the way soldiers often do. They want to get the task done. And so Walshot manages to delay and delay the ceasefire. He threatens martial law, but never actually establishes it. And eventually Walshot and the political colonial um, people in Palestine win out over the army in 1936. So just as the army is really gearing up to institute martial law and clamp down very heavily on the insurgents, there's a political settlement, so the army backs off. But if you read the papers of senior and not so senior army people at the time, they're not very happy with this, to put it mildly. I mean, their view is we need to go in hard. We need to uh, re-establish law and order. We need to deal with the rebellion with a heavy hand. And what's happening now in, the, in October with the ceasefire is you're just waiting for it to erupt again. And we're going to have to go through this process all over again. So why don't we do it now? But the political power 
lies in 1936 more with the high commissioner than the army commander than in 1937 and 1938 the power shifts and it moves more from the political class the high commissioner who's based in jerusalem and it moves more to the army commander the geos known as a goc who's the supreme army commander and the army has more power also the air force and other parts of the british armed forces they have more power than the civil officials but that really happens in the second phase of the revolt from late 37 1938. Getting back to military tactics, would it be correct to say that uh, notwithstanding the fact that there were um, precedents which were not that old that uh, military officials could go back to, I'm thinking in particular of the Iraqi revolt of 1920 as well as the, the um, uh, insurgency in Ireland in 1919 to 1921 that for the most part and correct me if I'm wrong uh, British military did not go back institutionally speaking and say oh we use this or that and the other thing in 1920 in Iraq or in 1919 or 1921 in um, uh, Ireland let's try this I got more of the impression that this was more of or organic um, searching for what worked based on the immediate day-to-day -day conditions? Um, you're, you're right that the army was reactive in that it, it responded to an insurgency in the local context. So depending on who the insurgents were, where, they, where it was, who supported the insurgents, the army would moderate its response, do different things. But I think that the army does, it's a hard, to, it's a hard thing to measure, but the army has an institutional memory and the soldiers who were in Palestine in the 1930s, many of them are First World War veterans. They will have served in Ireland. They will have served in Iraq. They will have served on the northwest frontier of India. So there is a, a tradition, unwritten laws and assumptions within the British Army that's passed on, that are passed on in the officers' mess from one generation to the next of what to do in an insurgency situation. Now, the Army does have pamphlets and guides. There's a manual of military law. There's King's regulations that will guide soldiers on what they do so there are physical books that the soldiers can read and they can follow but also of course they have a memory from other officers who are more senior who pass on to them traditions of dealing with colonial insurgency and your your reference to Egypt in 1919 Iraq in the early 1920s Ireland 1919 to 21 and also operations in Waziristan and on the northwest frontier of India in the 1920s and 30s I mean, all of these operations are a, a continuum they carry forward a British tradition so I think in 1936, the British look at Palestine, the army looks at Palestine to see what it needs to do, but it does so with assumptions, you know, views, a mindset of what it will do in these situations that, that, do, that do come, this mindset comes from previous insurgencies. And also that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the military by the mid-1930s also knew there were certain measures which could no longer be taken in the um, change political atmosphere after the Great War. Is that correct? That is correct. It refers, I mean, having just said that the League of Nations didn't have much effect on Palestine, of course the League of Nations reflected a new mood in international relations after the First World War. It was much harder in an era of 
uh, emerging nationalist movements, of uh, League of Nations ideas of self-determination, for the British to clamp down on insurgency in the 1930s the way the army might have done in the 1880s or 1890s in the sort of high renaissance of Victorian, almost sort of racist, eliminationist sub-wars. And one of the key events here is in 1919, in Punjab in India, in the town of Amritsar, where British-led troops, actually they were Gurkha troops from, from India, but they were led by uh, British officers, uh, shot almost 400 demonstra- unarmed demonstrators. And there was a big furore after this, and the Dyer, the British general involved, um, was forced to resign. It was, a, it, was a, it was a significant event. It was a hinge event between, I think, a style of counterinsurgency in the 19th century that was much more brutal, much more bloody. And after the First World War and after Amritsar, the British army was was operating with a lot of brutality, but it was more measured. It was a sub-war imperial policing situation. And the British were very keen also not to be seen to be like the Germans. They used to talk about frightfulness. And this was an expression that was used to describe German behavior in the First World War in places like Belgium, where German troops behaved very badly. And the British often say, we don't want to be compared to the Germans and the frightfulness of what the Germans were doing in the First World War. So the British wanted to be seen to be different. Um, It's interesting, actually, reading some of the army officers, because occasionally the army officers will say, oh, if the Germans were in charge in Palestine, we wouldn't have all this trouble. Their view being that the Germans would clamp down much more efficiently, i.e. much more brutally, and stamp the revolt out because their view is that the British government and the British army has to fight with one hand behind its back. And that gives a sense of how the British army saw itself in distinction to other colonial armies, which seemed to behave more brutally. Uh, when they make reference to the Germans, uh, it was from what you've been able to discern, almost entirely referencing uh, the Great War, not I, not I presume uh, the German suppression of uh, the revolt, the Hebrew revolt in Southwest Africa in, in uh, the beginning of the 20th century. No, there's a very um, interesting book by I think it's Isabel Hull on the German genocide against the Herero and, and other peoples in Southwest Africa in what, 1904, 1905. And that is an interesting argument showing continuities in German ways of counterinsurgency, which were much, much more brutal than anything the British did. And it's worth remembering that German counterinsurgency seems to stop at the end of the First World War because the Germans lose their colonies. But of course, the Freikorps, these right-wing German paramilitary organizations, inflict horrific um, atrocities on the Eastern Front and in Eastern parts of Europe at the end of the First World War and up into the early 1920s. And German forces in the Second World War fight huge counterinsurgency operations in Russia all across occupied Europe with horrific mass massacres, um, you know, appalling treatment of civilians. So the, the British did contrast themselves to the Germans, obviously not in terms of the Second World War because that hadn't happened at that time, but their reference went back to the First World War. I've never seen a reference in any British military files to what happened in German Southwest Africa, what's now Namibia, before the First World War, but the British reference Prussian frightfulness. So there's this sense of a, a Prussian way of war which stretches back before the First World War, but the actual the business of the terrible stuff that the German army does, the British army refers to the First World War, certainly from what I've seen of the papers relating to British soldiers in Palestine. Getting back to the revolt itself, how uh, economically speaking did the revolt support itself? Well, it didn't. That was the problem. The the rebels self-immolated with a disastrous call to strike, which only really hurt 
the Palestinian people who were supporting the insurgency. There was some the, the Right, let me backtrack. There was some funding that came in from Italy and also from the Arab world and the Muslim world for the insurgents, but it was never a huge sum of money. Um, Jewish settlers in Palestine, the Jewish community, the Yishuv, made quite uh, a big play of the fact that the Italians were financing the uh, Palestinian insurgency. What I have seen in the files shows that there, there might well have been some Italian money secretly coming in and also some Italian arms for the insurgents. But the insurgents were chronically short of money. They ended up being unable to pay people. They were chronically short of weapons. They had a, mix ma a mixed um, type of weapons, so they couldn't have standardized ammunition. They, were, they didn't have enough explosives. They didn't have enough bullets. They were poorly equipped. So you're right that the funding for the insurgency, which needed to be built up very, very carefully, never um, was never affected properly. And so the insurgents were always chronically short of money. And that manifested itself in rebels robbing villages. And one of the points that Mao made about insurgency was that a successful insurgency is built on the people. And of course, if the insurgents are robbing people and killing them, the insurgents even instituted their own curfews, which the British did heavily. The, the, the rebels also did this, and the rebels also fined villages. I mean, this, of course, alienated the, the peasants, um, the peasant base of the insurgency. So it was disastrous for the rebels. I mean, this goes back to my point earlier that it, it, it wasn't a revolt that uh, was well organized from the start. And uh, is that uh, economic factor one of the causations of why the revolt went from being an insurgency to what you characterize as banditry? Well, I think so. The, I mean, the lack of the lack of organization manifests itself, in, in my view, in a disastrous call to strike, and uh, not enough preparation being put in place to establish sources of funding. So without that organization, rebel bands went it alone. There was no one to give them direction. They didn't have any proper military training. And what they ended up devolving or falling back on was much of the endemic uh, banditry that was prevalent in, in rural Palestine at the time. So they started robbing the local people. I mean, they, they were strange because you, you had real, um, real, real rebels, real political rebels fighting bandits. So what you, what you had in the insurgency was a clash between real insurgents and those who were really in it to make some money and, and to rob people. And of course, that was a gift to the British because it was a division within the insurgent ranks. But I mean, too often, the rebels were behaving both politically, but also criminally. So they were, they were political and criminal at the same time. And one of the points that Mao makes, I mean, they get the same problem in China, was that if you want to have a successful insurgency, you need to remove that criminal element and you need to push the political element to the insurgent movement. And I mean, it did happen in Palestine. I'm not saying the insurgents didn't evolve at all, but it just didn't happen at enough speed or to an extent that could match the power of the British army. And really by about 1938, the, the rebel bands were very, very small. I mean, the, the British didn't usually find rebel bands of more than 40 or 50 men. So that's a platoon in the context of a modern army. And a platoon, which the Palestinians sometimes called a company, but it was just a platoon, was about the largest military unit that the Palestinians ever deployed and they didn't link them up so each of these little units fought parochially in a particular part of Palestine and there wasn't a unified command structure so 
I mean, all in all, both in terms of the strike, political evolution, and also military impact, there just wasn't enough punch there to seriously threaten the British. And, and the British troops were, were never threatened with a with a, a tactical or operational envelopment. They were never threatened with defeat on the battlefield. The rebels fought with shoot-and-scoot tactics, and the British were always chasing the heels of bands. The, there was never any big set-piece battle. And it's quite interesting to compare that to Vietnam, because the Battle of At Bac in 1963 showed just how powerful the Viet Cong were, how politically motivated they were, and also operationally and tactically evolved. And at Bac, the, the, the Viet Cong guerrillas withstood, I mean, air attacks, napalm strikes, rockets, um, thousands of rounds of ammunition. And they, they held their ground and they left the battlefield on their own terms. Whereas in Palestine, the rebels never left the battlefield on their own terms. The British chased them away. And the best rebel commander, Fauzi al-Kaoukchi, who did confront the British in some big battles in September, fairly big battles in September 1936, was only in Palestine for about six weeks. And he had struggled in Palestine with bringing the local commanders together. So the one chance the Palestinians had of having a regular officer, because Fauzi al Kochi had served in the Ottoman army, of having an officer come to lead them, he was, he was hampered by infighting within the Palestinian community. He was hobbled, if you like, by by all the sort of the Palestinian internal struggles. And so Fauzi al Kochi was never able to take these parochial bands and build them into something stronger, more organized, tightly knit to face the British. And once he left in late October, early November, he never returned to Palestine. Could you outline what you refer to in the book as, quote, the eight powerful overlapping course of violent spheres, unquote? Ah, yes. Well, in the book, I talk about uh, how the British, it's not just a military operation. The British also use other um, other sort of means of, of suppressing the Palestinians. So if you're looking, as many people do in, if they're looking at military history, tend to look at the military side of things, the security forces, and by that I mean the army, but also the Royal Air Force, which supplies vitally needed air power to back up the army and of course it gives the British military mobility over some pretty hilly and inaccessible terrain because the the war the warplanes can chase rebel bands. There's the military power and most people would look at that alongside the police as the way of um, pacifying or defeating an insurgency. But one of the points I make in the book is that the colonial legal machinery, that the laws, emergency laws, which we, we, you just don't have in America or we have over in the United Kingdom, those sorts of legal emergency laws are put in place in Palestine because it's a colony, because it's not a metropolitan area, so they can establish different laws. So it's the military power used in conjunction with the colonial legal machinery. There are curfews forced labor, there are fines, there's um, in, indefinite detention, internment. So people can just be picked up off the street and put in a camp and they can be kept there for a year or longer actually with, um, with renewal licenses. And that just doesn't happen in, in America or in Britain now. The police arrest you, they can hold you for a short while, but they have to charge you or release you as habeas corpus. So the, the, the rules of the game are very different in Palestine. And alongside this colonial uh, government with its tight legal machinery of emergency laws, alongside the army, there's also intelligence, there's information gathering by particular parts of the British army, the intelligence units, but also backed up by the Jews in Palestine who've got very good sources of intelligence. And there's also a prison system. And the British also have a terror of dirty wars. So there's 
um, torture and there are some torture centres. And finally, the British also have a, 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 a very effective political diplomatic track where the British co-opt neighbouring Arab rulers, um, mainly in Iraq, um, but also in Jordan and Yemen and Saudi Arabia to try and convince the leaders of the Arab revolt, such as Haj Amin al-Husseini, who's known as the Mufti, to um, agree to a ceasefire. So the British are attacking the rebels from all angles, not just the army on the ground with soldiers running around shooting rebels, but with also all sorts of other areas of repression, which combined create this overwhelming force that fights and defeats the insurgents. How effective as a military measure would you say were the policy of demolition? I hadn't, I hadn't mentioned demolition up to this point, apart from the destruction of Old Jaffa. And if any of your listeners go to Israel today and visit Old Jaffa, you'll see that there's a huge uh, boulevard that stretches in the shape of an anchor through the old uh, Arab city of Jaffa. And there's a lot of chic, sort of chic little um, jewellery shops and everything in there. But that was uh, a destruction that the British effected in June 1936. They destroyed a large part of old Jaffa. And it's the most visible and the most dramatic um, sign of the British policy of demolishing people's homes. In emergency law, the British had said that the, the uh, colonial powers, the military or the colonial civil officials, had the right to demolish people's homes if they thought that there'd been rebel activity from them. And the British used this power extensively across, of, across Palestine. They removed the people from the buildings, so they were targeting property, not people. But in some of the smaller villages, pro rata, the destruction was much larger than in Jaffa. So if there was a shooting, if there was a shooting near a village, the British would say that the village, which was closest to the shooting of a, of a railway or a or a car on a road or an attack on an army convoy or something, they'd go to the local village and they could target it in different ways. They could fine it, they could put on a curfew, they sometimes took grain away or they took crops away, they might impose forced labour. But one of the things they would do, and this became much more common towards the end of the revolt, was they would demolish houses. And this was usually done with dynamite. And sometimes it was one or two houses, the biggest houses, the most grand houses in the village of the wealthiest people to obviously provide the necessary, send the necessary signal to the Palestinians. But sometimes the British would just level whole parts of villages or the whole of a village. And if you see pictures at the time, you see soldiers uh, with pictures and captions such as the souk, the marketplace, goes up again. There'll be a big plume of smoke smoke over one of the Palestinian towns where the British have sent in royal engineers who've laid dynamite and blown up buildings. But sometimes the pictures of the villages are, are pretty, uh, pretty phenomenal. I mean, they're just the whole thing's just rubble. So it was a pretty effective um, demo, it was a pretty effective pacification measure. I mean, as your listeners could imagine, if someone came round and blew up their home, it would have a, a pretty powerful effect on, on, on their lives, on all of our lives. Why was rape and other forms of sexual violence such a, relatively speaking, non-issue in the revolt? Well, that's an interesting question. I raise it in the book, but also in an article I wrote for Journal of Military History. And it's a, it's a, different, it's a difficult question, it's a very sensitive issue, obviously. Methodologically, it's hard to uncover evidence. So what I say now is caveated by the fact that I... I this is said with as much evidence as I could get from Arabic, Hebrew, English and French sources, but I'm not sure that the full tale of sexual violence will ever be told. But 
what struck me compared to other counterinsurgency campaigns was the relative absence of sexual violence towards Palestinian or Jewish women. Um, Palestinian women would be the obvious target because they were the ones that was the community in revolt. And I, the British troops were not culturally inclined to inflict sexual violence. I think that's one uh, point to be made. I think an anthropologist would have a a better take on this than I would have because I think you need to look at societal structures or sociologists and look at how countries produce armies. So I think the army was a manifestation of British culture. And in that sense, the soldiers say over and over again that they weren't to touch or target or search uh, Palestinian women. And as far as I can see, they don't. And the laws in place, the, the both the military law that bound soldiers, but also the colonial legal laws, because they had these ordinances, which were the laws in Palestine at the time, forbid soldiers from touching or searching women. So they had some female searchers, for instance, Russian Christian women, um, some Jewish women, some Armenian Christian women who would search, do searching for the British troops. But obviously in fast moving search and sweep operations, this was just not practicable. So on the whole, Palestinian women were uh, they, the British used to separate them when they searched a village, but they didn't do anything um, they didn't know anything in terms of sexual violence towards them. They, they shot a few women who were throwing stones, uh, but it was a different form of, of response. One of the things they did, which they practice they had from India, was that the, um, the rebels would sometimes dress up as women. You also see this in Algeria in the 1950s with the FLN. The Algerian insurgents who would dress in a burqa to hide themselves and then the men could get through checkpoints. So one of the things the British did was they asked women who were veiled to show their hands, because of course if you look at the hands you can, well you can usually discern a man's hand from a woman's hand, so that's one way of trying to distinguish between men and women. And some of the rebels did dress up as women to try and escape security forces. But the the, the violence that the British directed at women was directed at house demolition, uh, they stole things, they smashed up the insides of houses, they put some women in prison, uh, they curfewed areas. Uh, there were lots of punishments that women suffered. But the, in my view, from what I've seen and what I argue in my book, sexual violence was, uh, was muted or, or pretty much non-existent by British troops. And in fact, some of the accounts I have found is one account of a gang rape was, um, was an incident that was, that was carried out by um, Palestinians on a Palestinian woman. These were Palestinian policemen or another case, Palestinian bandits. Uh, the expression used was violated the honor of, of local women. These were not British troops or policemen. These were local people inflicting sexual violence on fellow communities. So that's a, a different story. And it's not one that I go into in a great detail in the book. So I focus more on the British. Uh, there is an um, incident at the beginning of the rebellion, which uh, you make reference in passing, but I wanted to um, clarify. Would it be correct to say that by the fall-winter of 1936 that the pre-existing, almost entirely Palestinian-Arab police force had collapsed as an effective um, uh, force? Yes, I mean, the, the British Army had a very low opinion of the Palestine police. It thought that the the force was ineffective. But it's worth remembering that before the Arab revolt broke out, the Palestine police was divided up into three sections. There was a British section, a Palestinian Arab section, and a Jewish section. 
and during the revolt that the problem was partly the Palestinian Arab section and the British ended up disarming parts of it uh, because it was very hard for the Palestinian office to officers to carry on doing their jobs when they were obviously under threat from the rebels. So part of the police force collapsed from within the Palestinian Arab part of it. But the point that the army makes, and I do pursue this in the book, is that the, the British Palestine, the, the British part of the Palestine police force, so these are officers from Britain, was also relatively ineffective. It had largely carried out policing before the revolt by getting the Jewish or the Arab sections to carry out whatever policing was necessary. Each of those two parts of the police force spoke the local language, Hebrew or Arabic, and the British police were not well well placed when the revolt broke out in April 1936. They had very poor intelligence. They spent too much time chasing communists in Palestine. The CID, which is the sort of intelligence branch, usually it's done by something called special branch, but there wasn't a special branch. There was a political part of the CID in Palestine. They didn't have good enough intelligence on the Palestinians or on the insurgents. So when the army arrived, the army used its own systems, its own intelligence people, and it gathered a lot of intelligence from uh, friendly Jewish sources, of course, the, the Jews in Palestine were delighted to see the army working against this rebellion that was also targeting Jews in Palestine. So the, the British army went its own way. Uh, the CID got better over the course of the revolt and it increased in size. So the political intelligence part of the police force improved. But the, the police force was, was not up to the job in 1936 of dealing with the Arab revolt. It was strange, the police force, because it was a, a hybrid. It was neither a, um, a consensual, civil, civilian-based force, the sort of police that you'd have in America or in Britain, but nor was it a gendarme, nor was it a paramilitary force, a sort of carabinieri force as you'd have in Italy. It, wasn't, it was neither a, an ordinary police force, it was neither that, nor was it a heavily armed sort of paramilitary gendarme. And in the 1920s, the British, Army, the British police had a, a tougher, more military um, element to it. So it was neither sort of fish nor fowl. And when it came to revolt in the 1936, it, it didn't have the support of the local people, but nor did it have the power to crush them either, which is why the army had to be called in. Uh, in 1939, when the insurgency de facto had uh, ended, why did the Palestinian Arab leadership reject the um, proposals made in the White Paper, which came out in 1939? So I, I, I can't easily answer that. Uh, one of the points I make in the afterword to the book is that on all the successful insurgencies I compared the Palestinians to. I mean, I looked at the, the Viet Minh in the 1950s against the French, the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese against the Americans in the 1960s and 70s, the Sinn Féin and the IRA against the British in um, just after the First World War. I mean, even the Syrian insurgents in the 1930s and 1920s. I mean, all of these insurgencies accepted some sort of a political compromise deal at the end. They they gave something, there was a compromise, and it, it seemed that the Palestinians preferred nothing to something that was not everything. And I, I can't... I mean, the Second World War nullified... There's a white paper in 1939 where the British 
uh, effectively will end Jewish immigration to Palestine. Now, that's nullified by the Second World War and the Holocaust and what happens after the Second World War, where these dis- many displaced people in Europe end up going to, to British Palestine. But the Palestinians don't know that in May 1939, when the British offer them the white paper, and the Palestinian notable leadership rejects the white paper and its offer to end Jewish immigration. And I can't easily explain why. It's a it's a, a function of the, the politics of the notables where they'll, they'll always seek a, a compromise deal but can't be seen to be doing so publicly. But it's a sign of what I was saying earlier in this podcast interview of the, the problems that the insurgents have with leadership. I mean, the bravery of the insurgents is not in doubt. The, what's in doubt is the political effectiveness and organization of the people who are leading them. And one of the points I make at the beginning, stealing a phrase from the First World War, is that the, the rebels were, were lions led by donkeys. Um, or as the ruler of, of Transjordan at the time, Abdullah, described, he said there were sheep without a shepherd. Um, that's a, an Arab ruler describing the Palestinians in terms of their revolt and the leaders of the insurgents. Would you say that the British effort in ending the revolt in Palestine provides a model for present-day Western militaries to follow? Not, of course, somewhat, not of course the extraditional violence which occurred, but in the close relationship between the civilian and military authorities? I do. I mean, you, you can't use the levels, you couldn't use the levels of force that the British used in the 1930s now. The British do coordinate the military and civil authorities very well. I mean, the Americans try and replicate that in Vietnam a little bit after the, I mean, this sort of Phoenix program and also um, integrated programs in Vietnam in the 1960s after the insurgency starts there. It's not the only... It's not the only piece in the puzzle that would lead to a counterinsurgency success. But you're right, the British were often seen as a, a, as a model of how to affect in a counterinsurgency. But the example that's usually given is Malaya. But of course, in Malaya, the British were pulling out and they promised the Malayans independence. They just said, look, we'll, we'll fight against these communist insurgents prior to independence. And they were pretty brutal in Malaya and also in Kenya in the 1950s, as recent books show. So the British brutality does carry on into the 1950s and beyond, into the 1960s in places like Aden. So I think you're you're right that the civil-military coordination is very, very important, and it's brought to a, a very um, finely honed peak in Malaya in the 1950s. But there's also a considerable amount of force used, and I think that's that's one of the problems with, I suppose, counterinsurgency today is obviously the political side is problematic in places like Afghanistan and Iraq with state building, but also it's the use of violence and how much violence you can use in a in a world which is much more connected. People see what's going on and there's a, um, you know, there's a, there's a, a public unease at what can happen in these counterinsurgency campaigns, which which wasn't really there to the same extent in the 1930s. The British troops operated in a different political environment. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would that be? I think it's that the, the, the British were very effective on a fairly limited budget with not a very large army in controlling large parts of the globe. They were very effective colonial administrators. They were very effective colonial power, and and this was the army was a large, but but it wasn't the only part. The army was a large part of of how that power was expressed. And it also, I would perhaps suggest that there's not 
there is something of a British way in counterinsurgency. The British do things differently. And I think that it, it's useful to look at the texture of Portuguese or French or German or American or Russian um, counterinsurgency operations, how people use violence. And I think that the British use violence as a national culture. And this is expressed in how the British troops operate. And it makes those operations different to the operations of other countries. So it gives you a, a contrast, which is always, interest, always interesting for historians. Well, Professor, I would like to thank you very much for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles... My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, this is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Hughes. Thank you.